Marjorie Taylor Greene says she's not part of the Tear It All Down caucus, but she's pushing hard for the impeachment investigation of the president that many in her own conference oppose. We need to spend as long as it takes to investigate Joe Biden's crimes, but we also need to uncover every single person that covered him up. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm Patricia Murphy. A redistricting trial that could open the door for Democrats to win an additional seat in the U.S. House is ending today. We'll look at the stakes in that trial. I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, was indicted on federal gun charges, but there are plenty of conservative Republicans who feel that not just Hunter Biden, but Joe Biden should face much more scrutiny. We'll talk about it. Follow us on Spotify or any platform wherever you get your podcasts. Patricia, we all got together yesterday at a wonderful event for our soon-to-be-home WABE radio and realize we're going to be part of a very exciting lineup over there when we go on the air Monday through Friday. Yeah, WABE is rolling out all kinds of just unbelievably high-quality podcasts, video offerings, so much more than Just Radio, although I also am a huge fan of the Just Radio over there. And then as a part of yesterday's event over at the Carter Center, they announced that our radio show will be starting on October 30th. So everybody can start to set your alarms if you're a late sleeper, 10 a.m. starting October 30th. Otherwise, it's going to be a podcast. Um, But it was a terrific day and really just an honor to be a part of that group over there. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned we finally are able to say October 30th. People have been asking when we're going on the radio. And Tia, it was so great to see you in person. You were with us in Atlanta. Yes. It was great to be with the team. We got our first like group photo, all four of us. Like you guys said, it was really inspiring, you know, W-A-B-E. And I know we sound like we're doing an infomercial. I promise you they're not forcing (laughs) us to say this. We all really were just like sitting there like it's just amazing all the great things they're doing at W-A-B-E, not just with politics, but with culture and food and music. And so we're excited, though. Mark your calendars, October 30th. Yeah, yeah. well, for me, the best part of all was to sit at a table with you, Tia, you, Patricia, and Greg, and just enjoy uh, the morning. Uh, We got a lot to talk about on the podcast today. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Welcome back to Politically Georgia. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Tia, doesn't have unanimous support from House Republicans to launch the impeachment investigation of President Biden, but he's moving forward with it to satisfy far-right members who are demanding it by threatening, on one hand, to remove him from his position, but even more are threatening not to back a budget measure and saying they're perfectly fine with the possibility of shutting down the government at the end of September. Tio? I mean, it's funny. Over the, the recess, Mitch McConnell said, you know, it's a pretty big mess. And appropriations, finding out how to keep the government funded past September 30th is a pretty big mess. I spoke to several members, um, Republican members of Georgia's delegation Thursday before they went home, and they all have different ideas, not just about the path forward, but it's not just the hardliners who are open to a government shutdown. You know, I talked to Representative Buddy Carter, who's known as one of the more, you know, he's not a fire, not considered a fire starter. And he doesn't necessarily want a government shutdown, but he said it's not the worst thing in the world. And so there are just very different opinions of not only whether there should be an avoid shutdown at all costs, perspective, but very different opinions about what should be done to avoid the shutdown. You've got, again, Bill, you mentioned the impeachment stuff, but you've also got people like Andrew Clyde who want to defund the investigations of Donald Trump. He also wants to do a border security measure. You've got people who want any path forward to further cut the budget from the current spending levels. Um, there's just so many things that different Republicans want that they're, they haven't been able to carve out a path forward to do anything really this week. You know, Patricia, we a lot of the time talk about a shutdown in terms of the political consequences for uh, the party that, uh, that leads that effort. But this is also a moment in which if you shut down the government, you're denying people services, you're keeping paychecks out of the hands of government workers. This affects far more than the political fates of the people who shut down the government. Yeah, but I also feel like we've been through so many shutdown, showdowns, standoffs, and they always seem to kind of work something out at the last minute. I don't think that people are really highly attuned to the fact that this is two weeks away. And we are, um, you know, it's sort of like a, we are two miles away and we've got a million different sets of directions about how to get there, Tia. And my my question for you, the, the House is coming off of a six-week recess. What were leaders doing over that six weeks instead of at least surveying their caucus, crossing off some ideas that are just not feasible, working behind the scenes to get this a little further down the road. It is as if they left for six weeks, never talked to each other, dug further into their corners, and it feels like they are further apart today than they were in July. That's a good point. It seems like, from what I could gather, is that, number one, they weren't doing a whole lot of talking to each other, but there were plenty of people, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andrew Clyde, um, members of the House Freedom Caucus, over the recess, put out their demands, so to speak. And when they got back to Washington, we should note they only worked three days this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because they're out Friday. Um, 
when they got back, I think the perception from Speaker McCarthy and a lot of Republicans was that there the people who are holding things up and, you know, there was an appropriations bill that was supposed to come to the floor this week. They couldn't get it to the floor for even a procedural vote because these hardliners wouldn't allow it, even though Andrew Clyde says he wasn't one of those hardliners who wouldn't allow the bill. But in general, they're saying behind closed doors, what do you guys want? You're tearing it down. You're keeping us from voting on legislation, even though you say we need to be voting on legislation. What do you want? The latest thing that I've heard is what they want is there are 12 appropriations bills. The Appropriations Committee has voted on 10 of the 12. So some of the hardliners, the latest thing was they want the final two appropriations bills to go through committee. Now, this is part of we hear a lot. I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but you hear a lot about regular order. You'll you'll hear that from people like Andrew Clyde, regular order, put it through committee, then bring it to the floor. All 12 appropriations bills, one at a time. Regular order takes a lot of time. And Patricia, you know, from your time on the Hill, a lot of times appropriation, that's when you start seeing minibuses or omnibuses where they put a bunch of the bills together. Sometimes they skip the committee vote, bring it straight to the floor um, because time starts running out. So we're talking about regular order, but time is running out. And let's not forget there's a Democratic-led Senate that is also going to need to be involved in this and a Democratic president who needs to sign off on it. So even satisfying these demands on the House side is not going to get you but one third of the way toward the goal. And Tia, do you sense on the Hill, is it seen as um, they're trying to avoid a shutdown or are there members who won't be satisfied unless there's a shutdown? I get a sense that there are members who don't care about the ramifications of a shutdown. I don't think anyone is saying I want a shutdown, you know, but yeah. they're saying again, the when Buddy Carter told me on the record, a shutdown is not the worst thing in the world, that was eye-opening for me. Now, don't get me wrong. There were I talked to people like Rick Allen and uh, Barry Loudermilk who said we should try to avoid a shutdown at all costs. Hmm. Even Andrew Clyde says, hey, I'm not trying to shut it down, but here's what I think needs to happen for me to even um, sign off on stopgap spending. So there is, to your point earlier, Patricia, a lot of people believe that there will be a continuing resolution, which is that stopgap just kind of keeps government funded at current levels usually to avoid a shutdown house republicans will say yeah i'll support a continuing resolution andrew clyde says if it has border security if it defunds donald trump investigations um other republicans will say i'll support a continuing resolution if it reduces current spending levels and again that kind of continuing resolution unlikely to get support in the Senate, unlikely to get approval by President Biden. So we're still looking at, yes, there are paths forward, but in divided government, which I want to say this to the people at home, people at home love to say we need divided government. We don't want one party in charge of 
of the House, the Senate and the White House. We need some pushback. We need some checks and balances. Well, divided government, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but this is one of the real life implications of divided government. What makes it harder is House Republicans thus far have been less open to negotiating Real quick, do you want to acknowledge works. the uh, the siren going behind yes, you? Yes, I'm so sorry. Oh, so I think we, that's very fabulous. Should we acknowledge that I'm recording this from my car outside of the Capitol? Let's make it clear. You're you're recording from your parked car at the U.S. Yes. Capitol. You know, Patricia, I, I think what Tia just made a point that I wanted to come back to you on. I love your optimistic spirit in a way. The notion that the Republicans have had time to work with their conference to, ne- to negotiate, to talk rationally about what needs to be done to pass the uh, spending uh, measure. But when you only have this slim five-vote margin uh, in the Republican conference and when uh, you've got people like Andrew Clyde who are insisting that they won't vote for uh, the measure unless we look at defunding Fonnie Willis, um, the federal investigation, the federal indictments of Donald Trump, how much rational conversation can move forward in a in a productive way? Well, and I don't know that it was optimistic to think that they would be speaking over August recess. I think it's just logical. I think that's just what you what you do to avoid absolute catastrophe. And I think catastrophe would look just like this, just about where they're going right now with McCarthy having Matt Gates on the floor talking to him like he's a toddler and saying, if you don't do these things, we are going to move a motion to vacate. Now, um, behind closed doors, Tia, Politico's reported that uh, Speaker McCarthy said to his caucus, go ahead and do it. Let's see that motion to vacate. I think his confidence, and I don't think it's misplaced right now, he doesn't think there's anybody else who could do this job any better. This is just a very tight margin and you have members on the on the edges who are running a really hard bargain but it's almost as if failure is the only way that's going to um, kind of create a path towards success in some ways um so I kind of thought McCarthy would have sorted some of this out by now but maybe it's just not sortable yeah I think it's so interesting about McCarthy you know we're a family show but we can just say there was some not so nice language apparently in that closed door um, Republican meeting this morning and he's basically calling out the opposition saying if you want to vote to remove me bring it to a vote let's go Um, and I also want to I was talking to a member of Florida's delegation and I said you and me go way back with Matt Gates. We know he's an agent of chaos. And again, it's from Matt Gates. the perception with a lot of fellow Republicans is that he's doing it for the clout, for the TV hits, for the fundraising. They don't have an alternative. There is no one else who can get the votes to become speaker. That happened. We saw that with the 15 rounds in January. So what is the point of a motion to vacate? Well, again, it'll bring a lot of attention to whoever brings the motion, but it won't necessarily be fruitful. Meanwhile, Atia, you've also got a split in the Republican conference over the speaker's decision uh, at the beginning of this week to announce, yes, we will begin an inquiry into impeaching 
President Biden, something that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been pushing for for months and months and months. She loves to use the phrase the Biden crime family uh, to talk about why there needs to be an impeachment investigation. But again, you don't have certainly unanimous Republican support for this interrogation. It's far from unanimous, but I think what most Republicans are saying, even those who maybe if it had been brought to a vote, wouldn't have voted for it. They're not necessarily publicly criticizing Speaker McCarthy. What they're saying is, hey, there's nothing wrong with an inquiry. Let's let's look into it. Let's investigate. And if we find wrongdoing, then we'll know that we need to bring articles of impeachment. That's basically what Buddy Carter told me. Um, that he supports an inquiry. Now, I think where the people who are more critical of what Speaker McCarthy did are those Republicans who are in districts that Biden won. We don't have any of those such districts in Georgia right now. We've talked about that in in the, the immediate past podcast. Um, but so I think most Republicans are OK with it. There are probably a dozen or so that probably would rather he have not gone there. But again, he helped them a little bit by avoiding them having to actually take a vote on whether to start an impeachment inquiry. Tia, what's your sense about Trump's influence in this process? We know that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been meeting with Trump. She went to Bedminster and met with him. And apparently impeachment came up as a topic of conversation. Um, I also saw reporting that Ron DeSantis has been working back channels with House members, not on the impeachment necessarily, but on the question of government shutdown. Do you sense that Trump in particular is pushing this partly by getting his constituents into it, by pushing this message on social media and on right-wing media, is that a piece of this that's driving the train? I absolutely think so, because we know that he's the standard bearer of the party. We know there are a lot of Republican voters who want Trump to be protected. They want him to become president. And we know, quite frankly, there are a lot of Republican members of Congress who are Trump supporters, Trump aligned. And so on the issue of impeachment, they want to be able to say, well, you say President Trump was impeached. So was Joe Biden. You say President Trump broke the law. So did Joe Biden. So that's an important talking point as we head into a potential Biden Trump rematch. Um, When it comes to the budget, what they are saying is they have to push back against the Biden agenda. So some of what we're seeing with the budget, remember the last Congress was Democrats held the House, the Senate, and of course the White House. They say the current spending level reflects Democratic priorities. They want to put their Republican stamp on the budget. But I I also think, quite frankly, the cynical part of me sees that if there's a shutdown, that's going to negatively affect the economy. Part of the reason why I think some Republicans are OK with that is they they've already been criticizing the status of the economy under President Biden. Um, now, that's a cynical way of looking at it, but we're in very cynical times. All right. We're going to watch how this all plays out. We've got a couple of weeks before uh, uh, we reach the deadline, September 30th, to get a continuing resolution or budget agreement to proceed with government spending. And we're going to just see 
how far the far right wing is willing to go to gum up the works in terms of passing the measure. So let's do this. Let's get to our first break. But when we come back, let's take a look at the federal trial just ending here in Atlanta that could lead to a reshaping of Georgia's legislative and congressional districts. We'll look at the consequences of Judge Steve Jones' ruling. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. With all the news and chaos surrounding the Trump indictment, it's going to be hard to keep up. So the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with our new Trump indictment newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis of this historic case in your inbox. You can sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter, all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. So, Patricia, um, Judge Steve Jones has had about a week and a half or so of arguments as to whether or not the lines that were drawn by the Republican majority in the state legislature after the most recent census, in fact, denied black voters the right to choose the elected representatives that they want in both congressional seats, House, U.S. House seats and legislative seats. Uh, Judge Jones will take this under consideration and we'll uh, hear a ruling from him at some point. And if he rules in favor of the plaintiffs who believe the map is unfair, it's going to give Democrats at least an opportunity to add congressional seat and maybe win some legislative seats as well. Yeah. So uh, Mark Macy has been in there in the courtroom for us for the AJC. People can read his reporting at AJC.com. I want to give him a strong plug because there's no televised version of this trial. So you need to be in the courtroom. And Mark is doing exactly that. So from his reporting, we can tell you um, that the testimony has been going on for nearly a week and a half at this point. It'll wrap up after two weeks. The arguments have been over whether black voters are currently adequately represented under these new congressional maps and new state house and senate maps that were all redrawn in 2021 after 2020 redistricting um, the important data points in that question are that black voters were responsible for about half a million new residents here in georgia um, that is a huge increase since 2010. However, the lines after they re were redrawn um, ended up shaking out that Democrats lost a seat in the U.S. House. They ended up losing the sixth congressional district to Republicans. Uh, Representative Rich McCormick is representing the sixth now. Lucy McBath moved over to the seventh district, won that in a race against a fellow Democrat, Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, now, Democrats said because they have lost that one seat, that shows that there was a violation of the Voting Rights Act, that black voters were not allowed to choose the representatives that are going to properly um, reflect their will in Congress and in these new House and Senate seats at the state level. Um, and But the argument from Republicans, and this is what we expected, and this is what they did, um, they are saying uh, that 
the number of black Democrats in the delegation for Democrats did not change, that there were five, there still are five, and that that is still roughly proportional to black voters here in the state, which is accurate. However, it does not reflect um, the increase in other minority populations, uh, nor does it reflect the decrease in the white population in Georgia, which went down slightly. But of course, um, there was a white representative added. It it raises this question of what was the intent of the Voting Rights Act? Can somebody who is of a different race represent somebody properly in Congress? Um, are we talking about uh, party seats? Are we talking about seats to represent black voters? Is that same? Is it different? Those are the questions that were certainly under debate in the courtroom. I think, uh, uh, Tia, that Patricia just got to uh, the heart of, of this issue. Um, as we know, the United States Supreme Court just recently ruled that uh, the Civil Rights Act does, in fact, protect minorities, black voters, the opportunity to win seats in their legislatures and Congress based on race. But the Supreme Court has also ruled that it is perfectly legal for a party to apportion districts on the basis of politics, on the basis of their own party. And, and that's really kind of what's the nub of all of the arguments here, isn't it? Right. And I and I want to be clear with the black voters. The argument is that black voters should be able to elect a representative of their choice and that the way the maps were written diluted that power. But it is not necessarily about the race of who gets elected. It's about them being able to elect someone of their choice. Um, and this has been litigated, you know, like you guys have said, other states, it's been litigated kind of each redistricting for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Again, I come from Florida and I covered it and it was actually involving Kareem Brown challenged the new map, even though the new map resulted in where Kareem Brown was one. Um, black representative, the new map resulted in two, Al Lawson and Val Demings. But because Kareem Brown's old district got split into two, she challenged the state's map. And so, and she's a black Democrat. So for Georgia, I do think that the case is tougher. Alabama seemed much more cut and dry. You know, Alabama has a sizable black population. And at the time, well, currently, Alabama's map allowed one official to be selected by a, a black plurality, if you will, because it doesn't have to be a majority black district for black people to be able to have their say. But when you pack black folks into one district, then you dilute their voting power in others. And that's kind of at the crux of the Georgia case. And Patricia, the area that we're going to be looking at most closely, if Judge Jones rules in the plaintiff's favor, is that Northern Arc, the 6th and 7th districts, which once had Democrats, a black Democrat in Lucy McBath in the 6th, a white Democrat in Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th. After the census, the redrawn maps uh, created the 6th district as favorable to Republicans. And so Rich McCormick, the Republican, became the congressman from that district. Yes. And 
if these lines are redrawn, it's hard to say exactly what percentage or what proportion, what amount those districts would have to change, or even if it would have to be those districts. We just don't know. Um, we know what the legislature wanted to do the last time around. Um, they wanted to go in and sort of reflect um, the conservative growth in those exurban counties and sort of pack them in there into the sixth so that it would give a majority Republican district um, a strong, strong advantage. And that's exactly what happened. When Rich McCormick ran in the general election, he won by a very large margin. It wasn't even close. Um, same with Lucy McBass. She went by a huge margin when she was over in the seventh district. By making those, however, so clearly partisan, it, it, did that violate the Voting Rights Act in the process? And that's obviously the question that's at hand here. I think also it'll be important to see exactly what happens with state house and senate districts in that same area there are a number of seats right now that are very very close either slightly tilting toward republicans or slightly tilting toward democrats any change to those legislative seats in the northern arc could potentially have a huge effect um or or an important effect excuse me in um in the makeup of the state house and senate as well of course we have to get to a final resolution of this and even then once there's a decision from the judge as alabama has shown it's very very difficult to get to a new map um and that would be a, another really tough step especially because the people who drew these maps the last time around are not necessarily in the roles that they were in before so it would be kind of starting over from scratch and we'd be looking for a special session of the General Assembly sometime late this year to draw those new lines. Yeah, I thought one thing that was really interesting that caught my attention, and I don't have the history, and none of us may have this the history to talk about this in any great depth, but one of the plaintiff's uh, witnesses, a professor from, I think, Clemson University, said that when whether it's Democrats or Republicans, any time Black um, voters g get an opportunity to grow in power, the redrawn maps tend to dilute that power. Speaking about both Democratic and Republican parties, which I thought was kind of a fascinating thing for a plaintiff's witness to be talking about in this case. Yeah. And I think when you know the history of that, you know, there, the reason why in the South, particularly the Republican Party got so strong was because black Democrats entered into this alliance with Republicans because at the time, the white Democrats who were in power refused to cede power to the black Democrats that were in their party. And black Democrats got fed up, said they're not giving us the seats in redistricting. They're not allowing us to elect more black members to the state legislatures and the congressional um, seats and they kind of struck deals with Republicans and that did help black Democrats get more seats in states like Georgia and Florida but it also helped Republicans get in power in states like Georgia and Florida because they started drawing maps that helped them get more seats and you know kind of slowly pulled that power away from Democrats. And again, this is, we're talking about the redistricting in 1980, when those things started to take a turn. Well, after the 1980 census, I would say. 
as Patricia pointed out, uh, AJC reporter Mark Nisi has been covering this trial every day, and he filed for us this report. Georgia's redistricting case is now up to a federal judge after the case concluded on Thursday following an eight-day trial. The judge will decide whether black voting strength was diluted when the Georgia General Assembly redistricted the state's congressional districts and seats in the state house and state senate two years ago. As a result, Republicans gained a seat in Congress in the 6th District, which was previously held by Representative Lucy McBath by drawing the district lines in a way that gave them an advantage in last year's elections. During closing arguments on Thursday, attorneys for the plaintiffs, which include civil rights and religious groups, they said that Black population growth has boomed in Georgia, nearly 500,000 new residents between 2010 and 2020, and yet they actually lost representation after redistricting. And they say that if you look at the Voting Rights Act, which is meant to prevent discrimination in redistricting, that the plaintiffs believe they proved their case. They showed that voting is polarized along race, that black voters tend to support Democrats and white voters tend to support Republicans, and that through redistricting, that pattern persisted and black voters and Democrats, by extension, did not make any progress in district races. Now, on the other hand, the state's defense says, well, look, black voters have made a lot of progress in statewide races. U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock was elected, as well as other Democrats, such as Joe Biden, the president, and U.S. Senator John Ossoff. They also say that there are five members of Congress who are black Democrats and that they provide representation for the state's black population, which has grown to about a third of the state. So these are the issues that U.S. District Judge Steve Jones will have to consider. He acknowledged in court that this is a major and important case. He said that he knows that whatever he decides is going to have a big effect on a lot of people because seats in Congress and in the Georgia Capitol are at stake. So he took the case under advisement. Judge Jones did not rule immediately. He said he will make a ruling as soon as possible, certainly before Thanksgiving at the very latest, but I would expect it well before then because there are a lot of moving parts, including if Georgia's political maps are thrown out, Georgia senators and representatives will have to return to the Capitol to draw a new map before next year's elections, which could be very interesting because we still do have a Republican majority in the General Assembly and they would be facing the possibility of a judge ordering them to draw additional districts that accommodate black voters. I'm Mark Nisi, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thanks to Mark Nisi. Let's take another break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. We think that the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
you can become a subscriber, join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. You'll get three months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. That's a way for you to know exactly what's going on in politics. Read the jolt. So, Patricia, Governor Kemp has once again ratcheted up his attacks, or his certainly his strong criticism, maybe a fairer way to put it, of Donald Trump. This time, he went after Trump because Trump was um, criticizing state leaders who enforced coronavirus restrictions in the early uh, months of the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> the governor went on social media to say, not so fast, uh, governor. How did he respond? Yeah, so this is this actually happened over the weekend, but I don't think that we really yeah. had a chance to give this its proper due. So that's why we're going to talk about this right now, because we did see Kemp push back on Trump quite a bit about the 2020 elections. But that's just that's not breaking news at all. Um, but it definitely has caught our attention that now he's pushing back on Trump about other things. So including COVID. So over the weekend, Donald Trump was sort of uh, declaring himself to have been the person who freed America from COVID restrictions. And that put all of that in quotes because I'm paraphrasing him. But Kemp very quickly went on Twitter and uh, replayed a portion of Trump's original criticism of Governor Kemp when Governor Kemp was the first governor in the country to open the state's economy during COVID. And Donald Trump was the first person to criticize him very, very loudly from the White House podium. And so uh, Kemp on Twitter over the weekend said, while he listened to Anthony Fauci and parroted media talking points, I listened to hardworking Georgians. He may not remember, but I sure <laughs> as hell do. Um, so uh, it's just Kemp pushing back really, really hard. We we're trying to kind of figure out what was going on with this. What's the end game? And people close to Kemp have said, first of all, just saying what's true, that uh, Donald Trump is rewriting history, which he was trying to do, and that he feels like it's important to kind of have the facts out there on the table. Now, it also has the side benefit of giving some cover to other presidential candidates who might want to also do the same, who might want to also push back against Donald Trump, which they've really been reluctant to do in some cases. And so Kemp is using what he considers now his national platform, the voice that he's got as a candidate who's not in the race against Donald Trump, and really pushing back hard against Trump. And I am sure it won't be the last time that we see him do it. it is it clear that Brian Kemp has some hope that despite the odds, despite the polls, that Donald Trump will not be the nominee of the Republican Party because of his concerns that Trump could drag down some state Republicans up for re-election next year? Well, I think he wants, Kemp has made it clear he wants Republicans to win the state of Georgia Uh in their effort to win back the White House. And he's very concerned with the way that Donald Trump is going about things, um, obsessing over 2020, fundraising off of his four indictments, talking about what he did in the past, much of which was not even true when he talks about the past. That's just a recipe to lose. Um, you don't have to be Ryan Kemp to think that. I think a lot of people think that. So Kemp is worried about Republicans losing the state again because he was here the first time it happened. And so I think if Trump kind of came around and 
change this talking points. We know it's not going to happen. Stop talking about 2020 and started talking about um, what's ahead and his policies. I think Kemp could live with that. I think he said he would vote for the nominee, whoever it is. I don't know. He's He's not committed to voting against Trump, but he is really trying to push his party in a direction that he believes will win. And he believes that because that's the way he won in 2022. Tia, um, uh, actually, Governor Kemp talked to our friend uh, Chuck Williams at WRBL-TV in Columbus uh, fairly recently, over the weekend, actually. He said to, to Chuck, I don't think there's any question I've had more of a national voice just because of what I've been through, his getting attacked by Trump over and over and over again for years now, actually. Um, but I have been a little bit more outspoken, but it's really because I want to win. I want a Republican to be serving in the White House, and I don't believe they can do that unless they can win the state of Georgia. And I don't see a nominee in our party winning if they were focused on the past. But Tia, as Patricia points out, there is little chance Donald Trump is going to change his message. Not only is there a little chance that Donald Trump is going to change his message, but Kind of further problematic for Governor Kemp is that there's little chance that Republican voters are not going to stick beside Donald Trump. And so I think that's the quandary that Republicans find themselves in. And I think what Governor Kemp is saying is that he doesn't think Donald Trump can win in a swing state like Georgia um, or thinks it'll be more difficult than perhaps it could be with a different type of candidate um, for the Republican nominee to carry Georgia. And again, we saw Donald Trump didn't carry Georgia in 2020. Um, But I think when it comes primary time in Georgia, we're going to see Donald Trump probably easily win the Georgia primary. And all the polls from the early states shows Donald Trump in the lead. So I guess my point, which I probably said more than once, is Kemp, it's not a Donald Trump problem at this point. Kemp is speaking to a Republican Party that isn't the one that exists right now. But but Patricia, he has said, um, I haven't heard him say it very recently, but he certainly has gone on the record to say that if Donald Trump is the nominee, he certainly will vote for a Republican for Trump because he wants a Republican in the White House. Yeah, well, he's not going to vote for Joe Biden. I think that's been <laughs> well established. Um, and I think if Donald Trump is the nominee, his best chance to win is that there are a lot of other people who aren't going to vote for Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is way underwater in the state of Georgia. Um, the economy, it reminds me a little bit of Democrats' argument about NAFTA in the 90s. I mean, that's how old I am. Workers who were who had lost their jobs uh, as a result of NAFTA were saying this is destroyed my livelihood. It's destroyed my town. It's destroyed our economy. And Democrats said, no, it's fine. You're going to get retrained. Nothing's wrong. Um, I feel like Democrats right now are trying to tell Americans that nothing's really wrong with the economy. <laughs> everything's fine. Look at the numbers. Everything's getting better. But that it, there are too many Americans who don't feel that way right now. And not to get off on an economic tangent, um, but Democrats do have their own challenges in this election ahead of them. And that, I think, is where Brian Kemp wants to dig in on messaging. He says, talk about the economy. Talk about gas prices. By the way, he just cut the gas tax again, um, which uh, there's some hope in his camp that that might have a political benefit uh, to spin off for Republicans as well, to remind people 
gas prices are going up. Joe Biden's the president. I'm the governor. I'm Republican. And I'm going to cut that gas price real quick for you. So it's um, that's where Kemp thinks Republicans need to be focused. And I just want to point out that Biden is also speaking about the economy and choosing to push back. You know, he's got his Bidenomics, but now he's talking about Maganomics and trying to frame it as the difference in what could happen economy wise if Republicans get back in the White House, if they continue to control the House and perhaps retake the Senate. So it's it's interesting because, of course, Biden, Biden would say that his economic agenda has helped in ways that perhaps Governor Kemp is not as willing to acknowledge or give him credit for. So that leads us, I think, to our final topic today, really, uh, Tia, which is we, as as Patricia points out, uh, President Biden is underwater here in Georgia. There are many Republicans and Democrats, really, talk about Democrats, who don't really think he ought to be running for re-election. Of course, he's going to do that. Um, and now we have this additional problem that the president faces just yesterday. Special counsel for the Department of Justice announced indictments against Hunter Biden, three counts of felony charges uh, that relate primarily to guns. And all of that is going to contribute to what we talked about a while ago, which is the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world who are going to try to tie President Biden to what they see as Hunter Biden's crimes and corruption and the Biden crime family, which Republicans like Green repeat over and over to you. Right. Especially um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, even after the Hunter Biden indictments were announced, she posted on X, you know, where are the indictments for tax fraud, FARA abuse, money laundering and sex trafficking? Those are that's her quote. Now, again, Republicans don't have any proof. Even the special counsel who again is Trump appointed, the only crime thus far is gun charges because Hunter Biden was not legally able to carry a gun, which I think is ironic because a lot of these Republicans are like Second Amendment people. But anyways, he wasn't carrying a gun legally. Those are the charges. But all these other things that Republicans are accusing Hunter Biden of and then they bring in Joe Biden, those things are not proven. Those things aren't even there's not even really evidence there. There's been some innuendo. There have been some written accounts secondhand, but nothing directly implicating Joe Biden of the things that many Republicans would like to, again, impeach him for. But I think they're hoping that they can create enough smoke and eventually start a little fire. Patricia, one of the things that um, some Democrats are concerned about is that, as is often the case, Republicans come up with these catchphrases that have the ability to really capture attention, resonate. The Biden crime family. Um, Democrats have never been as good at uh, that kind of labeling against their opponents. But now there's some concern that the um, that the president uh, is not going to say anything to push back on uh, certainly on his son's indictments. He's going to want to stay free of it because he doesn't want to interfere with the Department of Justice. But somebody has got to speak up of uh, the Democrats feel to try to take some of the sting out of this. 
Yeah, and I just don't know how you can take the sting out of this. I mean, this there are so many photos of Hunter Biden that have been circulating that uh, implicate him in at least some of the things that he's been accused of and um, being charged with felonies after they thought they had a plea deal that would have resulted in misdemeanor charges is a major blow, not just to Democrats, but really to the Biden family and to Joe Biden personally. And I think that's really where Democrats should be most concerned. Joe Biden's um, elder son has died. Uh, Hunter Biden has been spiraling in a crisis for years and years. Um, To see his own son indicted on felony charges with the chance of going to jail and also have his hands really tied in what he can do that he believes is appropriate. He's such a traditional institutionalist. He would never speak out loud about an ongoing Justice Department investigation, even of his own son. And so they are in a real difficult spot here. Um, This is going to be personally very, very difficult for Joe Biden. Um, Messaging wise, what can you possibly say to make this better? I'm not sure, except just point fingers at the Republicans. But uh, at a certain point, it does also undermine the Republican talking point that there's a two-tier justice system that the Biden White House won't indict anybody but Donald Trump and his friends. Um, This is proof that that is just not accurate. They are indicting the president's own son and um, in a way that could really be damaging um, to him and his campaign, uh, just as it's uh, at the point where it needs to be picking up steam. Of course, we will be talking about this probably throughout the 2024 campaign cycle as the case against Hunter Biden moves forward in the courts. All right, Cheney B., I think it is time for our listener mailbag. Have I got that right? Oh, you know it. It is Friday. And we've got a lot of calls to the Politically Georgia podcast hotline, which, of course, you can call into anytime. 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. And, of course, uh, you know, it's been a little lonely without uh, Greg Bluestein here today. Yeah, Greg is off. He's doing another one of his very important appearances. Isn't is that what you understand, Patricia? Greg has gone into enemy territory on the Georgia Tech campus. <laughs> As a University of Georgia graduate, I didn't think he would be doing that in this lifetime, but he is. He was invited to deliver a very prestigious lecture at Georgia Tech. They made an exception on their no bulldogs rule down there as well. So, you know, it's everybody coming together to have a moment. We'll have to get a full report from Greg when he's back. In these times of divisive politics, yeah. wonderful that Greg Bluestein <laughs> sets the tone for working together at Georgia Tech and Georgia <laughs> University. <laughs> a true statesman. Shaney B., give us a question. Uh, Dwayne in Covington wants to talk about giving Hollywood money. Georgia subsidizes the film industry with millions of dollars. During this writers and, produ- and writers and actors strike, there are thousands of behind-the-scenes film workers out of work. Are we still giving the producers and the owners money? I was trying to look it up. We just wrote an article on AJC.com about the film industry impact. And even with this strike this year, the film industry continues to flourish in Georgia. So, yes. Um, Now, things have slowed down for sure, but there's still incentives that are going out for productions. But I think 
to me, that's two separate things because productions, for the most part, that need union actors, union workers are not moving forward. Um, But regardless of whether they're union or not, these productions are getting incentives. Here it is. Rodney Ho, TV film producer, spent $4.1 billion in Georgia fiscal year 2023. That's down slightly from a record in 2022. And in spite of the writer's strike. Now, again, this is what they spent. It doesn't... um, incorporate the incentives they received, but it's still a big industry here in Georgia. All right. Um, You can probably look up that article at AJC.com if you want to see Rodney Ho's uh, piece on just that. Shani B., you got another one for us? Sure do. The next call comes from Paul in Buckhead. He wants to talk about Bill White. Bill White, the former CEO of Buckhead, has moved out of Buckhead but is still active on social media commenting on state and uh, national politics. My question to the panel is, what future do you think Bill White has in Georgia state politics? And is his strategy to discredit the governor and other moderate Republicans a winning one? Patricia, I don't think anyone has covered Bill White as closely as you have. So this is a perfect question for you. I do actually know the answer to this question. Um, You are exactly right. Bill White has moved to both Lake Burton, where he has one home and is building a second home, as well as Tamara Lago's neighborhood in Palm Beach. He also, the last time I talked to him, he had his membership papers in at Mar-a-Lago, and it was just a matter of paperwork to get it all taken care of. So um, the important thing to know about Bill White is very, very close to Donald Trump. And I would interpret anything he's doing on social media as a way um, to support, to inoculate, to defend, and to advance Donald Trump's interests. So um, when we see Bill White attacking Brian Kemp on social media, that is because Brian Kemp is pushing back against Donald Trump vocally and is getting um, quite a bit of credit nationally for doing so. Um, So uh, we also see Bill White talking about Fonnie Willis, talking about uh, the Fulton County Jail. Um, All of this um, interpreted simply as a Donald Trump PR effort. Um, There will also be an effort uh, that Bill White talks about quite a bit that doesn't have a lot to do with Donald Trump. Um, But even though he's left Buckhead, he really can't stop thinking about Buckhead. And he is, um, he says, going to fund challengers, primary challengers to anybody who um, didn't help him move Buckhead City toward a referendum here in Georgia. He's he has not stopped thinking about that. He's not stopped planning revenge against the people who didn't help him do that. The list is very long because Buckhead did not hardly get out of the barn. Um, But Bill White, um, I like to say he can move away from Buckhead, but he can't quit Buckhead. Just cannot (laughs) stop thinking about it. And um, we will continue to hear from Bill White, even if he does not continue to live here. Revenge. If you're close to Donald Trump, revenge is always in your mind when people don't do what you have pushed for them to do. Shani B, do we have time for one more? We got to do one we, more uh, because we got an email from Bob, and uh, Bob writes: There are lots of municipal elections this year. Low turnout is because of lack of awareness. What are the most important ones? Even though they are quote nonpartisan, can any tea leaves be read into them? 
I'll take this one. Bob Herndon is an avid Jolt reader. So he emailed us and I don't necessarily have a list, but I have suggestions because there are a lot of municipal elections. A lot of the cities in Metro Atlanta are electing mayors and council members in DeKalb County. You've got some big elections coming up for its leaders. Yes, the AJC will have coverage often closer to Election Day. But there are a lot of other community publications that cover this municip- these municipalities. For example, your Decatur issues, your DeKalb Champions, your Reporter Newspapers, your Marietta Daily Journal. So I want to give a shout out to other local media. Yes, the AJC, read us. But you've got to dig deeper for some of these more localized races oftentimes. And that's kind of the message I want to send to our listeners. Um, That also means you got to go to the forums at your churches and at the Rotary Clubs. You got to, when you get the mailers or when you hear about the candidates, you got to go on their websites and go on their social media and see what they're about. There's no list of the top races because if you're in Dunwoody, your top races are different than South Fulton or, you know, Fayetteville, but pay attention to these races in your backyard. They're just as important as who's running for president, perhaps even more important, because as you guys see, there's chaos in Washington. They're not getting anything done. But let me tell you what will get done every year. Your property tax rates. What will get done every year is your school board is deciding about buses and 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 curriculum. So that's where you got to pay attention, folks. Okay, thank you for that answer, Tia. It's time now for us to turn to our choices for who is up and who is down this week. Tia, you want to start with your choice for who's down? Darn it, I knew you were going to come to me first. Uh, My who's down is going to have to be Kevin McCarthy because it just looks like he's lost control of the Republican conference in the U.S. House. There is no path forward for even temporary government spending. And as we've said right now, the shutdown would happen in two weeks. Patricia, who's down in your book this week? So my who's down are the lowest paid members of the U.S. military, as well as um, uh, dozens of military uh, generals and high level leadership waiting for confirmations. Um, There are two separate political processes in Washington that have bogged down um, what would be a very large pay raise for some of the lowest paid members of the military. Um, There is a separate uh, blockade sponsored by Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. Um, uh, So over an abortion issue, but it's resulted in uh, dozens of military um, leaders not getting the promotions that they are waiting to receive. Uh, That has a lot to do with their leadership of new bases, of new commands. Um, And within two weeks, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs position will be vacant as well because of that Tuberville blockade. So very, um, very significant damage to those members of the military over what are, I think, admittedly political actions. Um, My who's down is Harrison Floyd, who happens to be one of the defendants who has been charged in the conspiracy uh, that Fonnie Willis alleges uh, was an effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And and here's why. His attorney has gone to court with a motion asking that ballots and ballot envelopes, Dominion voting machine reports, absentee ballot applications, and forensic 
examinations of computer drives and storage devices be turned over to to, to him, to the attorney, because Mr. Floyd is looking for material, according to the quote, that will satisfy the fact that while the state asserts he and other defendants knowingly made false statements about the November 3rd, 2020 general election, this may prove that those statements weren't, weren't false, that there was a lot of fraud in the election. He's my down this week because that's exactly why he's on trial, along with the other 18 defendants, for continuing to perpetuate this notion that the 2020 election was somehow fraudulent. Harrison Floyd, good luck to you, my friend. Patricia, who do you uh, see having gained this week? Who's up? So my who's up is Utah Senator Mitt Romney. He announced his retirement this week from the U.S. Senate. Um, He has had a point in his career where he just says what he believes, says what he thinks, feels like he has a lot of freedom to do that. Um, It certainly didn't work out the way he wanted it to. But uh, a lot of people said they're going to miss Mitt Romney. And when most people um, leave Washington, uh, they leave when they've been defeated. They leave when it's too late. But I think that Mitt Romney is leaving on his own terms. And that's that's a good time to be who's up for him. Tia? I'm going to give who's up. I really want to give it to, um, I think, someone that you guys mentioned last week. So I'll just say that if I had been here last week, Judge McAfee would also be my who's up because he just continues to impress for the millennials, representing for the millennials on the bench. Um, But this week, I think I'm going to give it to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And it's because... She is looking like the adult in the room. Agreed. Compared to some of these other hardliners in the House (laughs) Republican Conference. So, you know, for her to be the one saying we can't burn it all down, for her to be the one to say, what are people going to do? Just shut the government down. I mean, this is not what we would have expected from Marjorie Taylor Greene a couple of years ago. So it's just been interesting to watch. But as a result, she's had a pretty good week. Ever since she supported Kevin McCarthy for speaker, we've said she has become a very canny and shrewd politician. She knows where the power centers are. That's a great choice, I think. All right. So my choice, in keeping with the fact that UGA graduate and devoted UGA football fan Greg Bluestein has bridged the gap and gone over to Georgia Tech um, in an effort to bring people together, my people who are up this week are Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. They are about to put out their first Rolling Stone album in 18 years. And if you know anything about the relationship between Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, you'll know that it has always been stormy and fraught with controversy. Um, Their new record will be out next month. It's called Hackney Diamonds. Mick Jagger is 80, Keith Richards 79, and it just proves that people can get together around the arts and do something meaningful. I'm personally very excited for that new Rolling Stones album. All right, that's it for today's edition of Politically Georgia, the podcast that, as you know, Um, comes to you on Wednesdays and Fridays. And we've been coming to you at four o'clock in the morning so that it's available as soon as you get up to start your day. Beginning next Wednesday, Politically Georgia is going to arrive in your feeds a little bit later. We'll be recording the podcast on Wednesday and Friday mornings and publishing it that day by about one o'clock, which means you'll have very fresh news for us. 
Thanks so much for being with us for this edition of Politically Georgia. You can find links to all the stories we talked about in the episode summary of the podcast. As we said, new episodes every Wednesday and Friday or whenever big news breaks. So Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Greg Bluestein and I will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 